Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined by Ian Clary. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at your name on Zoom. It's <laughs> Reverend Dr. Ian Hugh Clary. Um, I don't know if that's what you actually go by, but someone probably oh, set up all your... All the time. It's the only way, you're, only way you're allowed to do it. The only way you're allowed to name yourself is, is by your full title, just so everybody knows. Right. And uh, I would do that too. So you may call me Lord Graham of Edmonton. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we are about to finish John there. Calvin's I fixed it. How's that? I fixed Christian it. religion. And you fixed it to just Ian Clary. Very humble just, now. Just. You're hiding all of your seven doctorates and all of your yeah. prestige. Very good of you. All my honorary doctorates. Are the, ones <laughs> I didn't, the ones I didn't earn. Yeah. Um, we are finishing John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. It's kind of an interesting time because we spent over a year working yeah. through this. Now, I, no, I, I said this. I think it's like over a year and a half. We've been year and a half. We, yeah. I think we started some, in July, two summers ago. It's crazy to think about how time flies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, we'll talk about a little bit about the end and reflection, but I, we've both, I think, learned a lot. It's been good for us to kind of systematically study Kelvin. And we were wearing our vest today because we graduated from Cubbies or Calvinist Cubbies. <laughs> and we finally get our Calvinist vests on. It's like our, true Calvinist. Our, our Calvinist Awana. Yeah, it's our we Calvinist are, Awana. We are our Calvinist Cubs. <laughs> it's an elite club of the uh, of, of Calvinists. So now we have like street cred. And today we're going to tackle something that maybe three years ago would have felt like maybe a little bit of a blase ending because things were so normal. But now isn't. We're talking about civil government and how Christians relate to the civil government, maybe even unjust magistrates. I don't know if you ever heard of an unjust leader before who makes bad decisions. Not, um, not in my country. Yeah, not or, your, or yours. <laughs> not, not, in, not in North America. Not in the course. whole Western world. <laughs> and there's, there's broad, I mean, this is like way too broad, but there's at least two ref, uh, streams that you could approach the question. One of them involves some of the reading that I've been doing lately, and it kind of works like this. You would say, God's given us the Bible. There are laws in the Bible. And if a government doesn't obey the laws in the Bible, it's by definition unjust. We don't necessarily have to obey its unjust laws then. The government as a whole is bad. There's no way for the governor to have the light of nature to discern, like a governor or a leader, to discern uh, natural law because natural law is merely a, a pagan thing. And natural law means that people look into nature and they find rules apart from God. And in effect, that not only makes nature divine, but it also makes the state divine. But in fact, God's never given the state that uh, sphere of sovereignty. And we should resist, not only resist, resist this kind of government, but we should work hard to take dominion and reconstruct the government around biblical law. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, from, from the Mosaic law in particular, but in general, also the whole Bible. Now, this yeah. is obviously the view that I strongly affirm and I want to just know, am, am, I, am I slightly off on I my can tell by your beard. I can tell by your beard. <laughs> by my beard. Oh, I've been growing it out for this. <laughs> I, I've, I've changed my opinions. I, I'm no longer a reformed theologian because now I'm uh, what I just described. There you <laughs> a go. view which will never be named on here specifically. <laughs> <laughs> We're so bad. Oh, gosh. No one will know what I'm talking about. Nobody knows. I haven't named it. So I don't it know. It must be very subtle. Oh, <laughs> I did. Goodness. I did just explicitly <laughs> <laughs> outline a view that everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. Oh, good. I'm I'm down. 
<laughs> and this is going to be a fun podcast. I can tell I can already. Feel it. I can feel it. We've got some Calvinist energy going here. I think like, yes. you have the more Calvin beard, to be honest. No, I can't grow a good beard. Look at how like sparse it, it is here and stuff. Be, yeah, yeah look at this. The, get the goat pointy, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, that's it. I need to look like uh, I need to look like uh, Saruman from uh, the Two Towers. Ooh, nice. And now we're going to be more serious. Uh, we are. We were a little bit uh, making a few jokes, but that's that's good. We're going to get back into Kelvin. Now you wanted to open with a reading. Is that right? Yeah. What I mean to your question that you were asking earlier. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, it's necessarily deifying the state uh, that you either have, uh, you know, King Jesus as the head of your government, or if not, then you're going to have some sort of other god. Um, I'm not a, I'm not in favor of statism and obviously something like uh, communism and tyranny and all that sort of stuff is really bad. Like, nope, <laughs> you know, nobody's saying that, but uh, that it's good. At least I'm not. And um, but, you know, to ground that, especially in a, in a view of natural law, that the way it often gets expressed the way you did it there for the sake of the discussion, the natural law is grounded in the eternal law. Right. That that's just how it's always been understood. You can read that in Aquinas, you can read that in the Reformed Scholastics, that natural law is just a reflection of God's own character. And it's that that as he's created, then as cause is to effect, and effect always has some reference back to the cause and, and looks like it. There's vestiges, we might say. And so uh, so you see God's own character in nature. And so even if you're governing as a pagan but you're governing according to natural law, you're still governing according to what God wants you to do. So, uh, so that, that just belies the silliness of that whole kind of statement. Um, and, uh, and, and Calvin here, I mean, <laughs> book four, you know, chapter 20, a little 420 here for us, maybe to kind of like bring us down a little bit and chill us out. But uh, did you just make now a 20 reference? Now this now is a Calvin. This is now actually a Calvinist pot. We have our vest. Do I have to take it away from you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but this whole, I mean, man, like you're right. Like this whole chapter is entirely relevant to so many of these discussions. And like, I, you know, I was part of the Davenin Institute for so long. And one of the Davenin Institute's major concerns is political theology, but it was never like one of my like big issues. Uh, I always appreciated what they were doing. I learned a lot from, from them. But it was like, and I'm glad I did. I got that under my belt, I think, so that when this pandemic hit and then we started having to ask all these big questions about like the, ro the role of the civil magistrate in relation to the Christian and in relation to the church. Well, wow. Like now, it, as you say, it really has become this like key talking point. And Calvin, whether you agree with him or not, has a lot to say here. And because this is part of our tradition, we actually owe him the duty to at least hear what he has to say and try to treat him honestly. As we've seen, like, you know, some some thinkers today or or more recent thinkers have called him a heretic uh, because of some of the things that he'll say in relation to the natural law or this kind of stuff. But like, man, just listen to what he has to say. So what to do that. So I think what a really helpful summary of everything in this chapter of, uh, of book four, chapter 20, it's actually summarized really well in uh, the confession of faith that he had to write in Geneva called the Geneva Confession. It was written in 1536. Same year, one of the editions of the Institutes came out, uh, was published in 1537. It was for use within the churches in Geneva after he would kind of returned back to Geneva after his time away in a kind of exile. And so this like 
this 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 the last section uh, of uh, the confession, uh, Article Twenty One, on the magistrate. I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's a it's a lengthy paragraph, but it's not too bad. And it's the it's basically a summary of what we're going to be talking about here. Um, so Calvin says this, uh, and and it's it is a bit of a dispute whether he actually wrote it or not, but he's definitely behind it. Theodore Beza says he wrote it, so I'm going to take it that it's from Calvin. And it, and I mean it looks like the Institutes. So this is the one that was the, the French Confession, right? No, French Confession's different. Oh. So he's he's also there's also Calvin in that too. But uh, no, the French Confession is actually that comes out in the uh, 1559, which is mm-hmm. when the, this edition of the Institutes we're reading has has come out. So. Um, so this is the Geneva Confession. He says, we hold the supremacy and dominion of kings and princes as also of other magistrates and officers to be a holy thing and a good ordinance of God. And since in performing their office, they serve God and follow a Christian vocation, whether in defending the afflicted and innocent or in correcting and punishing the malice of the perverse, we on our part also ought to accord them honor and reverence to render respect and subservience to execute their commands, to bear the charges they impose on us, so far as we're able without offense to God. In sum, we ought to regard them as vicars and lieutenants of God, whom one cannot resist without resisting God himself, and their office as a sacred commission from God, which has been given them so that they may rule and govern us. Hence, we hold that all Christians are bound to pray God for the prosperity of the superiors and lords of the country where they live, to obey the statutes and ordinances which do not contravene the commands of God, to promote welfare, peace, and public good, endeavoring to sustain the honor of those over them and the peace of the people without contriving or attempting anything to inspire trouble or dissension. On the other hand, we declare that all those who conduct themselves unfaithfully towards their superiors and have not a right concern for the public good of the country where they live, demonstrate thereby their infidelity towards God. Um, so much more Calvin gets into more detail here. And I think his thought develops by the time you get to the 1559 edition of the institutes, but man, like what he just said there in that confession of faith is, is definitely here, uh, in, in, the in book, book, uh, uh, chapter 20 of book four. When Calvin opens this chapter, uh, he mentions a twofold government mm-hmm. and that is, you know, usually what's called a two kingdom thinking today or taking them theology yep. so what is a what is a twofold government what is that theory what is that doctrine according to calvin at least yeah so obviously in our day it's become a hotly debated issue the so-called two kingdoms uh theology uh it's funny in my in my uh, historical theology class this morning i was reading uh, my students and i were reading together luther's freedom of the christian where he articulates the principles of the two kingdoms as well the inward man versus the outward man Inward man, I'm totally free before God. I'm freest of all, but before others, I'm a slave to all. I'm a servant to all. And it seems like a paradox, but once you understand how justification works and then your relationship to good, in its relationship to good works, it makes total sense. So Calvin's going to articulate a kind of a, a two kingdoms theology here that's, that's very key to his overall political theology. Uh, that's not, what it is not, is church and state. That's not what it is. Because the church itself occupies both, uh, it, it finds its place in both spheres, if you want to put it that way, um, estates, kingdoms, 
Uh, and so here I would he's like to use the word estates on this podcast, please. I thought I thought spheres would be more relevant, but anyway. Um, and so he's going to get into this right here, right in the very opening chapter. He says, "Now, since we have established above that man is under a twofold government, and since we have elsewhere discussed at sufficient length the kind that resides in the soul or inner man, which is what Luther is talking about, and pertains to eternal life, this is the place to say something also about the other kind, which pertains only to the establishment of civil justice and outward morality." So that's what he's just been doing in book four is he's been articulating what spiritual government looks like. And book now three, what chapter 19 in particular on the freedom of the Christian is in the background here. All that stuff. And so now what he's doing is he's making a turn to look at our civic responsibility. And so here we are as Christians and we are occupying both spaces. The inward man lives before God in utter freedom. Uh, outward man, however, has responsibilities, both in terms of the individual Christian, which is going to be unique from the corporate body of the church. And so that's so going to outline those two. I have an objection. When he talks about inner and outer man, this sounds to me like dualistic, platonic, manichaeistic nonsense. So where would, where would this kind of language come from? It must come from Plato. Uh, or it comes from Paul, um, and I'm he doesn't have it li uh, listed here, I don't think, but it's... Uh, this is exactly Paul's language, the inner and outer man. It's, it's, it's You're Luther, being renewed from the inside out, you're a new creation. But Luther makes, the, makes it, and uh, when he makes this distinction in Freedom of a Christian, he appeals to... A, it's Second Corinthians something, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but it, 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 what you might know it. It's like, it is that inner man, uh, uh, outward man distinction that Paul that makes. frequently makes it. Yeah, yeah. we care about the so, body of death within us. Or in a man is renewed day by day. The law of our mind versus the law of the flesh. It's, it's yeah. not that it's not like this platonic dualism where your body is bad and your soul is good. Yeah. Rather, there are organizing principles. Yeah, it might be it yeah. might be good to think of it as like a Christian holism, where yeah. it's like this body soul dynamic, irreducible whole. Right, and so it's like you are you are a composition of both body and soul. The soul has a primacy. In that it is what determines what you what you're going to look like bodily and how you're going to be in once you are a body, but like the soul the soul can continue after death, whereas the body does not. And then once you're resurrected, the body the mat matter reunites with the body and then becomes who you are again, right? So you still have all the faculties of the soul in terms of mind, will, and affections, even when you're disembodied. So you're still you, even though you don't have the physical body, but that's not how it was intended to be, right? Se death is what comes in and separates that. So it's not, it's not a Gnostic dualism. It's just Paul. And, uh, and they're just picking up on it here. Right. And why so, do you think Paul's a, a Gnostic dualist? Well, it's because he was so influenced by Stoic thought, you know, his relationship to Seneca and all this kind of stuff too. So it must be yeah. it. Yeah. Lots of stuff behind the Bible we can make up. Yeah. Um, but, the, I mean, uh, even, even just think of like a more cosmic dualism in Hebrews and like the, the eternal. Or uh, Romans 8. Yeah. It's like, you know. Now, so anyway. now, I think that's, but that's important to kind of lay out. Um, by the way, if you're just listening to this podcast, we don't think Paul is no. enough. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, that was a super joke. sarcastic. <laughs> because sometimes arguments are made against Calvin, for example, being yeah. too platonic. But actually, I would say. He's really drawing on Paul, even if he uses language that is overlaps of Plato, who Kelvin is okay with in principle. Now, yep. um, the the thing I want to get at, though, it's important because you could read this chapter with that kind of wrong assumption and think, oh, when Calvin's talking about outward morality, it's because he's kind of a dualist, platonic guy, and he doesn't really get what's going on in the Bible because the biblical law, for example, would encompass all of life, including your body. Yeah. Which actually is, is a fair way to kind of critique this view. I don't think it's a persuasive one, but 
it's actually a fair one. And I think it's something that we at least need to address. And I think we sort of just did it now. So that's, I think that's yeah. useful going forward. Uh, well, and what's, what's important to note is that the two are not in opposition to each other, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, 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 and, and that's often what happens with a true dualism is that the two are opposed. There's no opposition between these. It's actually just trying to like recognize, re, uh, re, not reconcile, but like sort of like understand the relation between the two, these two governments as they are called, right? The earthly and the heavenly kingdoms or something like that, or spiritual government versus civil government, however you want to put that. Okay, so he makes this uh, distinction, Christ's spiritual kingdom and the civil jurisdiction. So here's my question to you. Is it possible to be spiritually free and in civil bondage? Absolutely. So let me maybe put it in a way that uh, you just taught on. Um, Can you be a perfectly free Lord of all men if you're restricted outwardly, for example, you're punitively punished, you can't drive a car or you can't use the road, or your mortgage is doubled because of a view that you have, or you're fined for just existing as a Christian, like actually did happen in the ancient world. Yeah, 100%. Are you still yeah. a perfectly free Lord of all men, and why? Because because of your justification. Like, you could be in a prison in North Korea and still be the freest Lord of all, uh, mm. even though you're in chains in a, in a, in a prison persecuted for your religious views. It's like, yes, that's the whole point of this that's luther's whole point and i think that's what calvin's getting at here too is that and that that's what that's what's gonna that's what's gonna undergird the whole of what he'll call christian commonwealth it's like the 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 the, what's called the cura religionis right which he's going to get into when he starts talking about the two tables here it's the care of religion so the magistrate actually has a care of religion for uh for the people within his dominion and uh and that that's going to like have an impact on people whether you're a christian or not living within that kind of a commonwealth so the magistrate um, can actually compel you to go to church because that's an outward thing. What he can't do is he can't make you recite the creed and the magistrate can't make you take the Lord's right. Supper because he can't that's, change your internal that's, that's internal, right? Now, um, I'll just note uh, at around this exact same time, the Council of Trent was going on and uh, they published a different view at the Council, at one of their canons. And that view was that the priest, the Roman Catholic priest, he had no duty to the magistrate in fact he was free from yeah, the civil that, magistrate right yeah so this roman catholic view that's unum sanctum too i think right if i'm remembering correctly by boniface i actually don't know that i, don't, I know the trend because i uh, i taught on it but i don't actually know the. but yeah. the point is that this, this is a view and this was eventually rejected strongly at the at the this well, is why you have a holy system. roman empire and yeah. why you have a papacy yeah and so what calvin is going to do is say while these two inner and outward uh, governments are distinct they have a relation just like the body and soul it's relation like it's not like they're there's still an irreducible union in a certain sense and so he actually says this on page 1487 section two the two governance are not antithetical is the heading right he actually makes this point which i think is really interesting he says uh somewhere in the middle <clears throat> yet civil government has as its appointed end so long as we live among men to cherish and protect the outward worship of God, to defend sound doctrine of piety and the position of the church, to adjust our life to the society of men, to form our social behavior to civil righteousness, to reconcile us with one another and promote general peace and tranquility. And if I were just to give this a summary, I would say the state's job 
is to provide the material conditions for people to flourish and in particular for Christians to flourish. Yeah. Like if you and I couldn't go to church on Sunday because there was murderers on the road to the church, that would be bad. But because murderers are restrained by the law, we can walk to church. I mean, that's the, the really practical example. But it's not just like providing the conditions of flourishing either. Uh, the, the, there's a responsibility to make sure that like the, the, a good Christian magistrate in a Christian commonwealth is actually uh, required uh, to make sure that idolatry is not being practiced, right? That's actually part of the first table. So if you, if you, are go if you govern according to the two tables of the law, uh, then those first ones have to do with outward worship. And so <clears throat> you have to... Some of the reform magistrate reformers, I think, would say things like, you know, they the governor actually has uh, uh, oversight over even the right administration of the supper. Uh, well, I'm not saying those are things that I agree with. I'm just saying that right. that's, that's there, you know. Um, um, Johannes Althusius. Althusius, yeah, his Politica. He, um, I, I just read the, it's not the full thing, but just the little summary version of it. Oh, yeah, with the Acton Institute. Yeah. Out, it, yeah, I mean, it's actually the full thing. It just it gives you only a sec, like not the full book. It just gives you a natural law, but he does basically say natural law contains the first and second tables yes. of the 10 commandments. Yes, totally. Why wouldn't it? Does it make sense? Like why would God put a law in nature that's somehow going to allow for like idolatry or something like that? Well, like that doesn't. Is it like, is it too bad if I just read a couple of verses from Romans one? Oh yeah. It's terrible. Don't read the Bible. Because um, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. How? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How? Ever, or when? Ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. Oh, okay. So they're without excuse. And what's so, the excuse about? The excuse is a failure to worship. The failure to worship, right. So the point is that nature is sufficient to tell you that God exists, that he has eternal power, and so on. It doesn't tell you about the Trinity or Christ the Redeemer and so on, but God exists. So the idea, like basically the first table, you should worship God. <laughs> Yeah, that's available to reason. The problem is due to our sin that we uh, exchange the glory of God for corrupt things like uh, images of animals or selfies on Instagram. <laughs> I do a lot of that, by the way, really my my adultery. So, um, <laughs> but the thing is, like what Calvin's going to say later here, too, right, is that uh, different nations govern differently. Uh, pertaining per, uh, particular to their own specific needs. So these aren't spelled out in specifics of how you're supposed to do it. And this is why he can like be making appeals later in, in book 20 here to like Roman law. He's like quoting from various, <clears throat> various legal philosophers of the ancient world and all that kind of stuff, because the natural law actually can do this even within pagan thought. And he's going to say <clears throat> that the Mosaic law in terms of its, uh, in terms of how 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 it structured society for Israel is not not necessarily the way we ought to be doing it now, and so yes, we have the natural law, and yes, the the Old Testament can inform certain things for us, but it doesn't have to undergird, nor does it have to inform um, what we're actually doing when we're trying to use, when we're trying to import, import import our own civil laws within our particular society. Yeah, and if I could just add a, a brief, not an aside, but an expansion. It's like, so God's eternal law is, is basically his nature. And mm -hmm. so it makes sense that you would see it not only in the Bible, like also in the Ten Commandments, because God wrote the Bible, but also in creation, because God authored creation. You would see the same standards, character, facts, God's imprint upon both. 
And it's the most reasonable thing to believe if the Bible is true. If God created yep. everything, why would you not see God's order imposed upon creation? Right. So natural law, rightly conceived, is just recognizing that God is God. And that's a pretty, I think, just, just really important baseline assumption, because I think a lot of people, when they hear natural law, they think, well, nature is opposed to God, who's a, you know, all about grace or supernature. Well, mm-hmm. but God authored it, nature, and nature is meant to be sort of like a pedagogue, a teacher, to point us back to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Paul, uh, I don't know if it's uh, Psalm 19, but I don't know if it's David there, but the psalmist says. I think it is David. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, it, what it does is it grounds scripture and reality for us too, right? When there's like this like comport between scripture, biblical law, and natural law, it shows that like the Bible actually has- They're the same. Real reality, gra- like grounding in reality, right? Anyway, we should that's keep going. Why everyone, well, that's why the nations can look at Israel and say they're wise. Because- yeah. Not only does God give them good, good um, application of, uh, of his eternal law, but it corresponds to what everyone knows is good, even if they don't live up to it. Yeah. It's not evil. It's good. And it's consistent rather than human corrupt. I mean, you can even argue that even some of these ancient law codes have problems in them. But Israel's, I think, is a, what does Paul say about the rods? It's good, just, and holy. Yeah. What else does Calvin say? Well, oh my goodness, man. Like he gets into all sorts of stuff. Uh, Like when you think about how, um, well, uh, I used to be a hardcore libertarian, right? Like anarcho-capitalist libertarian. I thought that was the more biblical way. But then you became Uh, a Christian? (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Well, I mean, I was reading a certain strand of reformed theology that you were sort of joking about at the beginning. And that was really informing that. First of all, I was serious. You started laughing. (laughs) Can help it. <laughs> <laughs> then we descended into uh, frivolity, but we're, we're and, then, and then God intervened by making your wireless go out. <laughs> My intervention for our frivolity, but like Kevin you, would think, approve. you think about how he's he hates anarchy on 1486, right at the very beginning, and that's because he's dealing with this context of the Anabaptists, and uh, and um. And so he lays out all this stuff here that, uh, uh, you know, he says for um, in on 1486, first, uh, before we enter into the matter itself, we must keep in mind that distinction we previously laid down uh, so that we do not, as commonly happens, unwisely mingle these two, which are completely different nature. These are these two governments uh, for certain men when they hear that the gospel promises a freedom that acknowledges no king and no magistrate among them, but looks to Christ alone, think that they cannot benefit by their freedom so long as they see any power set up over them. They therefore think that nothing will be safe unless the whole world is reshaped to a new, or should we say reconstructed, uh, to a new form mm. where there are neither courts nor laws nor magistrates nor anything which, in their opinion, restricts their freedom. Now, I'm joking when I say the word reconstruction there. I, I know the reconstructionists don't believe that. But, um, and so, but the Anabaptists do, right? And uh, whoever, who, uh, for, nor whoever knows how to, dis- oh, sorry, but whoever knows how to distinguish between body and soul, there's that distinction again. Uh, just like in Luther, uh, between this present fleeting life and the future eternal life will without difficulty know that Christ's spiritual kingdom and the civil jurisdiction are things completely distinct. Since then, it is a Jewish vanity to seek and enclose Christ's kingdom within the elements of this world. Let us rather ponder that what scripture clearly teaches is a spiritual fruit, which we gather from Christ's grace. And let us remember to keep within its own limits, all that freedom, which is promised and offered to us in him. That's I, a, like, I, no anarchy here, um, 
you can't conflate these things and uh, you have to keep them distinct and you need, and in order to do that in the civil sphere, you need a magistrate, you need laws, right? This is what he's going to talk about. Like the, the laws are the quiet, the, the silent magistrate and the magistrate is like the embodied embodiment of laws, like that couplet that he gives us later in here. And so I think yeah. one illustration that maybe makes it simple is when you come to Christ, you shouldn't, you shouldn't imagine it frees you from obeying the government. Likewise, when you come to Christ, it doesn't free you from your marriage to your wife or your obligations to your children. Which some actually thought. Well, some, yeah, maybe, but uh, yeah, I guess. But my point is that the natural, normal obligations in life are still good. Yeah. They're just not the ultimate good. Right. So you should but pursue they, your wife can, for Christ's sake. they can sake. point you to they the can, ultimate good. Well, right? that's what Ephesians 5 says. Marriage points you to Christ, children, yep. uh, to, to know God the Father by, by implication, I suppose. Yeah. And I think also, I think just the idea of hierarchy, the idea of submission to authorities is good because... As Romans 13 says, God actually ordains authority. So submitting to authority in general is good. Yep. Now, it is authority in general. They're not every specific leader whatsoever because some like uh, are Adolf Hitler and you shouldn't. Right. So uh, that's that's instructive, right? Because what Calvin <clears throat> Calvin's going to get into uh, later uh, when it gets to things like um, on page, what is it, 1512 maybe? Uh, yeah, so 1511. Uh, under number 24 there, he says, uh, the subheading says, obedience is also due to the unjust magistrate. And not only to the unjust magistrate, but also to the wicked, um, mm -hmm. right? Which there would be a distinction between that because you could be a Christian magistrate and, and rule unjustly, but then there's the wicked and the wicked ruler actually has a role, which is to punish. And so what you're called, what Calvin is saying here is that, you are actually called to obey bad kings. That's that's the right. subheading, right, for number 26. Uh, and then he gives this extended example from multiple places in the Old Testament where Nebuchadnezzar is described. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is a tyrant. He is a guy who actually takes um, an idolat idolatrous view of the state to himself and makes himself a god. <laughs> and he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And he's still, you're still called to obey him. Not absolutely. It's not absolute obedience. The, the institutes ends on Acts 529. So if, if, if Hitler's doing all these horrible things, right, uh, within, the, within the nation and he's ruling unjustly, Christians are called to, to, uh, to obey him, except when if he's like, you need to go out and you need to execute Jews. You're like, I can't, I can't do that. Now, you're not called to actively rebel against him. You're called no. to pa passively say, I won't do it. And if you're going to take my life, you take but, my but life. But I won't go along with what you said. Think about what you just said. In, in, insofar as you're submitting to the, the idea of that authority, I mean, you're going to be executed. That's just, that's where it is. Now, the one thing I'd like to really just note, because that's you your said, ultimate act of, of disobedience, right? That's your ultimate act of disobedience is to give up your, your life or your property or whatever else you have it to do. It seems fairly Christ-like given that the cross is the center. Now, but the one thing I'd just like to note is, is you kind of said this at the beginning, but it's worth just pondering. Talks about unjust and wicked. Um, what king or prince or leader has ever been just perfectly? Not even David. Yeah, okay, Jesus, but not even well, Jesus. Yeah. Yes, of course. But, and what king has not at one point been wicked? So the answer is they all have. And so you can't just say because some government somewhere is wicked or unjust or done wrong things here and there, that as a whole, they're therefore no longer valid. Because remember, Romans 13 is really clear on this. It's actually that God ordains authority. And therefore, rulers partake of that, that divine authority. 
It's not that the rulers are themselves the authority, like it's right. an equal sign. That's Calvin's point. He's like, you have to respect this office, whoever's occupying it. You and have for Mealy's point as well, too. Yeah. What I'm, but I mean, it's Romans 13. So I think it's can, really can important. Can I make a side of observation yeah. here, actually? Um, I was looking, uh, when I finished the book a couple of nights ago, when we finished the Institutes, I was looking in the indexes and the bibliographies and all that sort of stuff. I couldn't believe how much Peter Martyr Vermeule shows up in the indexes. Oh, really? Um, oh, my goodness. He's ever, it's, it's, it's like, it, I always thought, oh, you got scripture, then Augustine, then Bernard. It's actually scripture, Augustine. Peter, Ver, Peter Martyr Vermeule is everywhere. I was really surprised. Anyway, Calvin loves, loves him. Um, but I didn't realize it was so... Oh, just one second. I have a, a child. Okay. Okay. We're back so, to brief distraction, but go on. Yeah, that's okay. And so, um, so think about uh, what he's going to say in terms of then this dignity of the office, right? That we owe to uh, the magistrate 1489, right at the very beginning on number four there, uh, that uh, because the magistrates are ordained by God, right? Uh, the, the Lord has not only testified that the office of magistrate is approved by and acceptable to him, but he also sets out its dignity. Uh, with the most honorable titles and marvelously commends it to us to mention a few since those who serve as magistrates are called gods which is his reading of psalm 82 which would be very against michael heiser's reading uh let no one think that being uh, so called is of slight importance right and so he's he's saying like he actually at some point i think calls the magistrate yeah at the end of that uh, right at uh, 1490 um that that paragraph four or uh, section four there he says, the Lord has declared his approval of their offices. Accordingly, no one ought to doubt that civil authority is a calling, not only holy and lawful before God, but also the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all callings in the whole life of mortal men. And we always hear, oh, the pastor's the highest, uh, the, the office of the pastor is the highest calling. And Calvin's like, nope, it's the magistrate. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's, I think because of our kind of modern ignoring of natural law and that God actually created the world for us to live in, we almost forget that like the order is still good. Yeah. Like it's great to be an artist. It's great to be a farmer. Uh, Isaiah 28 says that God teaches the farmer. It's it's great yeah. to be a magistrate. It's Be-Bez- great to be Be-Bez- a premier. Bezalel, right? Who's the artist behind the in the Old Testament of making the the, ta- the temple or the tabernacle and stuff? These are genuinely good things. It's not unspiritual to pursue them. It's they are natural ends that have an ultimate significance. They sign up to God. Uh, on page fourteen ninety one, he calls them vicars of God, just like yep. in the uh, the reading at the very beginning. Yeah, which so is he has, he has a high view of government. There's and he a has good- a particularly high, like his particular view of government that he favors right after uh, in number eight, right? Because so, he's saying it's good that there's a diversity of forms of government. And he favors, he says right there in the middle of eight, for if we, if the three gov- for, forms of government, which philosophers discuss, be considered in themselves. So here he's appealing to earlier philosophers, um, particularly Plato and Aristotle. Uh, I will not deny that aristocracy or a system compounded of aristocracy and democracy far excels all others. Thank you, Canada, <laughs> right? He's a Canadian. Uh, not really, more British, I guess. He's, there's an aristocracy. There's No, there's, Calvin's Canadian. He's Canadian, yes. Um, right, but uh, that's, that leans into a democracy is, is what he thinks is the best. God save the queen. Amen. So she, for 50 years now, right? 70. 70. Wow. That's insane. Um, so I think if we could kind of summarize what's going on in this chapter, 
we can say that he has a place for this double government where God's single rule is administered across church, across the state. Not that they are these totally uh, unconnected items, but they are distinct in terms of their administration. And he, he really does have a strong view that we need to be very careful and submit to God's authority. And that's significant, even just to bring out in our day and age. doesn't mean there's no exceptions whatsoever. Right. But I do think the way that he's talking is, is odd to us. And part of it, though, is I, I think Calvin has a strong view about natural law and the ability for people to discern those things, even though this is Calvin, like Mr. Total Depravity Calvin, right? Right. Um, yeah, he's still able to thing. say... There's, there's an essential goodness to the office of the magistrate. I think sometimes it's just important to bring out the obvious like that because uh, it's, it's straightforward. Now, uh, we might just, there might be one last thing we can say, and that might be on 1503 and following. Calvin distinguishes between, the, in the Mosaic Law, moral elements, basically the Ten Commandments. Yep. The elements that really look towards priestly duties and cleanliness, which we might call the ceremonial law. And elements that are more directed towards Israel in their place and time in history to allow them to flourish and to do good according to their time and circumstance. Of those categories, Calvin identifies those moral elements uh, basically as natural law. What about the other two, Ian Clary? What does he think about the things that pertain to ceremonial law and those that pertain to judicial laws? So he's, he's pulling directly, he says here at the bottom of 1502, right, that this is this threefold division uh, is a common division of the whole law of God published by Moses. And then he gives those three, right, that you just articulated. And then he expands upon them in number 15 on page 1503, uh, right? So you have the, the moral law, which he's going to begin with. The two, he gives it two heads to worship God, and then the other is to embrace men. The ceremonial law was a tutelage of the Jews, uh, with which it seemed good to the Lord to train his people. And then the judicial law is given to them for civil government in, uh, imparted certain formulas of equity and justice by which they might live together blamelessly and peaceably. Um, the law though, that he's going to say governs it all is at the bottom. And here he's going to sound exactly like Augustine of Hippo. It's the law of love, right? Yet these must be in conformity to that perpetual rule of love so that they indeed vary in form, but have the same purpose. And so they, in, in like later dis, uh, scholastic distinction, um, you get moral law, which is always abiding. Uh, it's not something that can be done away with. And then the ceremonial and judicial elements are what are called positive law. That means that God can institute them for particular purposes at particular times and then remove them. Right. And so the distinction- It's not bad right to here. sacrifice a goat, but you should not do it today. Now it right. is wrong to do so. Right, exactly. And then, and then, and then he's going to get into on um, 1504, he's going to ground the moral law into the natural law. It is a fact that the law of God, which we call the moral law, is nothing else than a testimony of natural law and of that conscience, which God has engraved on the minds of men. And on the page prior, he's already said that this is all, uh, God's eternal law is kind of uh, behind this law of love and so on, something like yeah. that. Yeah, and then he's right on 1505, the Mosaic law is not for all the nations. I mean, it's just interesting though, like when he's like, you know, he's talking about just war in here, the right of taxation. It was interesting. He gets into this whole thing about like how princes actually should be making money and actually to the dignity of their office, use that money to have big houses, <laughs> like palatial estates. He actually thinks that's good, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Can I read you a sentence of Calvin? Yep. For the statement of some, that the law of God given through Moses 
is dishonored when it is abrogated and new laws preferred to it is utterly vain. In other words, <laughs> if someone argues that you must obey the law of Moses in place of other laws that you've created on the basis of natural law, that argument he calls vain. Um, and it's because, I mean, the, the thing is, what's behind all this is God's eternal law, the law of, basically the law of love. Jesus himself says the whole law hangs on this, love of God and love of others. God is love, John tells us. Mm -hmm. John Calvin maybe doesn't focus on God is love as a theological definition, but he's too good of a Bible reader to miss what Jesus says. Yep. And I think we can maybe just, let's just try to finish here because I know you to run to a class, but like. But let, I want to do, I do want to talk about some other, like the wicked ruler stuff though. Okay. Like then let me uh, just, let me say the last thing. Then, then yep. you go and say the last yep. thing you want to say. I, I just think it's like really important to basically realize that throughout church history, when people have read the Old Testament, They've, to simplify it, saw the Old Testament as the structure of thought to understand Christ. It's a pedagogue. Mm -hmm. Tutelage, he just the said. Tutelage to Christ. And it gives you the structures, the form of thought, the idea of what is a sacrifice. Well, the Levitical law tells you that. Not because the Levitical law is eternal. It can't be. It's temporal. The same thing with, I think, the Mosaic civic laws. Insofar as they um, um, uh, promote love, as Calvin says, they, they're useful and good as positive laws, but they're always meant to teach us something. They're meant to preserve Israel as a nation and so on. But now we have the law, as Calvin says, written on our heart and our conscience bears witness. I think, I mean, the Bible says that. I don't know if he says here, says that the minds. So we have that law and we obey from the spirit. And, they, and if we live by the spirit, Paul says against such thing, there is no law right. of joy, peace, etc. But it doesn't mean there's no like uh, eternal standards of God. But if you live by the spirit and it's written on your heart, so that obedience is now generative of the inner man, as Paul, uh, as, Paul, as Calvin says, yeah. we don't necessarily need in the same way that Israel did the law of Moses as it was written upon stones and becomes a ministry of death. Okay, no your thing. Condemning. Well, like to this very relevant question, right? Of the question of the uh, the unjust magistrate uh, who is is not ruling according to what God wants. Uh, there could be abuses of power. This is all in fifteen twelve. Then the wicked ruler, right? So what does he say about a tyrant? Uh, so uh, let's see here. For despite the Lord's testimony that the magistrate's office is the highest gift of his beneficence uh, to preserve the safety of men, and despite his appointments of bounds to the magistrates, he still declares at the same time that whoever they may be, they still have their authority solely from him. Indeed, he says that those who rule for the public benefit are true patterns and evidences of this beneficence of his that they who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by him to punish the wickedness of the people that all equally have been endowed with that holy majesty with which he has invested lawful power, right? So why is a tyrant raised up? To punish the wickedness of the people. At the very end of that same number 25, he says, in a very wicked man, utterly unworthy of all honor, provided he has the public power in his hands, that noble and divine power resides with the Lord, uh, resides which the Lord has by his word given to the ministers of his justice and judgment. Accordingly, he should be held in the same reverence and esteem by his subjects insofar as public obedience is concerned in which they would hold the best of kings if they were given to him. That's when he gets into Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. He's going to do it out of Jeremiah as well, right? Jeremiah 27 is going to be very key to this discussion as well. And uh, he's going to illustrate it with David not going after Saul ultimately. Um, 
And then he says on number 29, but, but uh, you will say rulers owe responsibilities and turn to their subjects. This I've already admitted. But if you conclude from this that service ought to be rendered only to just governors, you are reasoning foolishly. Uh, they are at the end of the paragraph. They are still subject even to those who are wicked and undutiful. Uh, and he's saying it's going to make what these what this does is it makes you realize your own sinfulness when you have these sorts of uh, uh, of wicked rulers over you. That's what the first response of a wicked ruler is to be for the Christian is to make you see your own wickedness, suss it out in your heart, repent of it. And then implore God's heart. God's the one who judge uh, uh, is the one who will come and judge the tyrant. And so you just you just implore God for help. Now he will say, appealing to a, what will become the doctrine of the lesser magistrate in 15, 1519, these pages, where he's going to appeal to the Spartans, pagans, and the notion of the ephor, right? Who were these lesser magistrates who were then. Uh, used uh, in order to rebel against a higher magistrate, the Spartan kings. Uh, and he's going to uh, use that as an example of if you have to have a rebellion or some sort of resistance to an unlawful tyrant or a king, it's a lower prince that's going to do it. And so like the doctrine, the, the lesser magistrate, this is, this is the beginnings of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So there is call for it but it's not going to be the Christian or it's not going to be the you resist church. through another established authority from God. That's from God. What those authorities are for and that's the order. That's the whole order of right. it. And like I said, at, at the very end, he's going to say, but it's not absolute, right? The, or the, uh, the, the, the rule of the King is not absolute. And he's going to appeal to acts five twenty nine, where Peter says we must obey God rather than men, but all within the context of Calvin has just laid out here in terms of what that disobedience ought to look like. But Calvin has, he's able to say both those things, obey God rather than men, because this is at the inward level. Like if you deny Christ, you don't do it. Yeah. But he also has this two government view. So he has a very strong and biblical view of how the state ought to work according to natural law and scripture. So Calvin has both. He's not like a retreatist pietist in that there's no view of the state, but nor is he a takeover dominionist because he understands Christian freedom is primarily of the conscience. Yeah. He's, primarily the, being his justified. context is he's steering a course between the radical anarchy of the Anabaptists. And then the recent, you know, uh, it had recently been published, um, the, the Prince by Machiavelli, that is state absolutism. And he's like, that's, that's the issue that he's dealing with in his own context. And he's steering a biblical course right through it. And uh, man, it, Whew, like what a way to end the institutes and what a way to end the podcast. I mean, it's so enti entirely relevant to, I mean, good grief. We could go on and on here. I'm sure. We could. Finn. Well, we finished the institutes. You have one minute to tell you, tell us what you learned from the institutes before you go. Uh, well, the thing I'd start with is actually just saying thanks to you. Uh, like, I'm glad a year and a half or more ago, you emailed me. and was like, hey, do you want to do this? I'm like, okay. And uh, I'm like, I look back on it now. It's like, man, I'm so glad. I'm glad we did the Institutes. I'm glad we did Ecclesiastes. I'm right. glad we did Job. The, the whole, the, all of this has been super beneficial to me. And the big takeaway uh, from Calvin for me is that he's pastoral and he's balanced. And that to me is the reason why this book has stood the test of time.
I, I have a similar thing. I'm really glad we did it. I learned a lot. I think just being able to talk through what we read, hear different the, ideas. The back and forth, the right. having to read in order to communicate it to you, knowing that right. there's potentially an audience. That's been super helpful too. It's potentially an audience, yeah. Potentially, who knows? <laughs> uh, but that that really helped yeah. me because it's like, it was a different kind of reading then. I find Calvin is somewhere between like Augustine and Aquinas for me in the sense of like, he's often a pleasure to read, but he's really organized as yeah. well. I found even one maybe that some things is going through, which is like a little bit dry. Yeah, the, the Roman Catholic stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but it's well thought out. Like mm-hmm. he's not like a, I know he edited a lot and rev- revised it, but you don't read him and say like, well, I give it a college try. <laughs> you read him and say, <laughs> you know, this might be a little dry for me, but it's really well thought out. I'm glad they did. I'm glad it's a resource for me. Yeah. And I would say like a lot of the impressions of like, I've, I've also taught Calvin and read his commentaries. And so I have a, more than ends, but like a lot of his, like he had a hard life. He was a sickly life and a very kind of dangerous life. A lot of our stereotypes about him, I think, are are unfounded. Yeah, he's a, a man used by God who's totally imperfect, <laughs> made tons of mistakes, but so have we all. Yeah, but he's someone incredibly useful, and this book stands the test of time, even roughly half a millennia, millennium later. Yeah, crazy. Five hundred years so later. Over, yeah, just over five hundred. It was yeah. In, so, uh, in in uh, 2009 right it was his uh, 500th anniversary so it has to be 450th for this book anyways oh for the book sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it, yeah it's um it's it's what i think maybe he was born and was he once he born 1509 yeah 500th for his life then um anyways i uh, thanks for doing this to me and we're yeah. i'm actually i'm pumped again to augustine's me uh, too a confession so big time we'll be apologizing every single podcast confessing our sins no that's not what it's about we'll get to it thanks ian all right